are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 20, which include the following two topics, our unity in view of many differences, and second, sin is darkness, holiness is light. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about our unity in view of many differences. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. In order to understand the points St. Paul is making in chapters 4 and 5 of his letter to the Ephesians, we would do well to begin by talking about the unity which God wills for mankind in view of, not in spite of, but in view of, the many differences we find among peoples and in creation. God is one. God is one and there is no other. He is one being, one nature, one essence. He is simple. We talk about God as simple, and this can be difficult for us to understand sometimes. When we say that God is simple, one of the things we mean is that God is his own essence. God is a being unlike any other. As he says in scripture over and over again, I am one, there is no other. All unity is found in God's oneness. And this matters greatly for what we are talking about today in view of the differences in creation and in mankind for whom God wills perfect unity. This seems like a contradiction in terms or a paradox, but it is not if we begin by considering God in his simplicity. God's essence is his existence. When God reveals his name in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the four capital letters in Hebrew, capital Y-H-W-H, we can translate as, I am who am. God is his own essence. I am who am. Or we can translate it as, I am he who is. I am who I am. 
God is the only being who can say, I am life. I am truth. Imagine if a human being said, I am life. I am truth. It would be ridiculous. It would be unthinkable. And yet God reveals this of himself. God is three persons. He has revealed that he is three persons in one God. But the three persons do not share the divinity. It's a great mystery. Each person is God, whole and entire. Christ reveals the Father. When he says, I am life, he is revealing himself as God. He says, I am truth. He says, I am the way for all mankind. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. God is his own essence. It's difficult for us to grasp. So God is one, there is no other. He is the first principle, the first cause, the origin of all things, the creator. He is what we call the first mover. As first mover, God himself is immovable. He is the immovable one, the unchanging one. God cannot change his mind. He cannot change his will. All of the perfections of God, when we speak of the perfections, we can speak of God's goodness, his beauty, his truth, his unity. We speak of God's will, God's plan. But we do this, when we do this, we have to keep in mind that all the perfections of God in reality are one, one and the same thing. Any active cause produces its like. This is a law in the natural order. It's part of eternal law. Any active cause, and God is the first cause. He is the active cause par excellence. Any active cause produces its like. This is according to nature itself. Trees produce trees. Flowers produce flowers. Human beings produce human beings. It is part of God's wisdom and it's divine. When God creates, everything that he creates bears a resemblance to him, speaks about his goodness, his order or wisdom, his truth, his beauty, his plan, his will, his unity, everything, to varying degrees, of course, to greater and lesser degrees. The more that something created is like God, the more it reveals things about God. Now, man is the summit of creation. God has chosen to create us in his image and likeness so that we are like God in ways that all other created things, even living things like the lower animals, vegetation, 
plants are not. We have a life in us by which we share in God's own powers. We have an intellect. God has a mind. But even that sentence, God has a mind, almost distinguishes. We have stepped away from God's being as essence. It's difficult for us to speak about God because we are composite beings. We deal with language and our realities are many steps away, really, from God as he truly is. But we have a mind because God has a mind. We can think. We can function creatively. This is part of the mystery and blessing of work, which God bestows on man at the beginning of time. We tend to see God's blessings all too often in very human ways. We see work as oppressive, as a burden. Work is part of our glory. It makes us like God. We share in creating, in bringing his created order to its fulfillment in the person of Christ. Work is a blessing. It's a privilege. It's indeed part of our glory. Now, everything then bears a resemblance to God, from the greatest things to the least or the smallest things, but man in a most particular way. Imagine that we were trying to explain to someone else a concept, a truth, a reality that was very difficult for that person to understand. It seemed very complex. And in trying to demonstrate that truth, trying to explain that reality, what we did to help the person understand is that we provided example after example after example, illustration after illustration. This is exactly what God has done in creation. He has given us millions upon millions of examples and illustrations revealing, speaking about his divine goodness, his unity, his plan in creating a new heavens and new earth. Everything that God does in the beginning, he has the end already in mind. God is pure act. To be pure act, when God, if he wills something, he reveals this to us at the beginning of creation. It's recorded at the beginning of the book of Genesis. When God says, let there be light, there is light. The moment God wills something, it is. Now God has also willed to create his whole order in space and in time and let it unfold according to his own wisdom. As Albert Einstein was to point out, that if God had not created time, everything would have happened at once. But this is part of God's wisdom. But when God wills, when God has this plan in the beginning, from all eternity, the goal or end, including the purpose of that plan, is already present at the beginning. 
Now we know this is true even for us. If we embark on a plan, if we have an idea, and we want to carry this plan out, and perhaps it's a very great plan, and it's going to take many, many years to do, and involve many people, and have many different phases. In beginning that plan, in its very first hour, the end or goal is already present. It's implied. It's there. In fact, the unity of everything that happens depends upon that. The beginning and the end are one and the same. This is why Christ says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is why scripture says that it is in Christ all things hold together. Everything finds its unity in Christ. God's plan is fulfilled in the person of Christ. So that as we execute that plan, all the people who are involved, it may take many, many years, all of the work that has to be done, all the resources that go into it, all of the phases, all of that is in some way unified in the reality, its beginning, and in the goal that it tends towards. This is the unity that St. Paul wants us to understand. Because we tend to be perplexed by the fact that God calls us to perfect unity in spite of the fact that there are so many differences among us. We ask ourselves, how is this unity ever going to be accomplished or come to pass? Because there are so many different people. How are we going to come together as one? Now, when we speak of differences, the word difference can have positive or negative connotation. Differences in themselves are not bad. God has willed these from the beginning. This is the variety of the created order, the variety of mankind, the multiplicity, the beauty of the many different kinds and ways, which, as we have said, all come together in this unity. But because of the fall, because of concupiscence, because we live in an imperfect world and we ourselves are not yet perfect, those differences can be sources of division, disunity. They can become an obstacle to the unity that God wills. And of course, this will be the second question we deal with, because the moral life, the holiness of God's people, is critical to bring about the unity which God wills. So what we discover, what St. Paul is emphasizing as he begins chapter 4, is that we must start with the unity, the oneness of God, his will, his plan, understanding that we are created with all this variety, with all this variation, precisely so that God can bring about the glory of this great unity that he has in mind. Every person created, everything created has a purpose in God's plan. Not only every human person, but everything in the created order. The stars, the fish in the sea, the flowers, the stones of the earth, the sand, 
absolutely everything has a purpose and is designed to show forth God's goodness and wisdom. Man, most particularly, has this purpose. No two human beings on the face of the earth are exactly the same, are created for the same reason, or will glorify God in the same way. Every human being is unique and unrepeatable. No two people from the beginning of time to the end have the same composite of gifts, of strengths, of vocation, vocations within a vocation. We have little callings within the greater calling. We have our primary vocation, but we also have work in the church. Nearly everyone has a vocation or several smaller vocations or callings, forms of work to do within their primary vocation. No one can take the place of any other person. Every person God creates is part of that plan for the fullness of Christ. That's why St. Paul in several places talks about the fact that we must, we must form the fullness of the body of God, the mystical body of Christ, which God had in mind in the beginning. We would hope that not one person is missing. We all have different gifts and strengths and callings. God has us born in certain countries and certain places, calls us to do certain tasks, and that is necessary for the whole body. What we lack, another has. And whatever anyone has to give to the body is an increase to all those around that person. What God is doing is bringing to completion the communion of persons that he has willed, and he is doing it precisely through the differences that he has placed, that he has written into mankind, into all the peoples of the world, and into creation itself. We see the differences as something which is an obstacle or which holds us back from this perfect unity. But St. Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. We are united in the most essential ways, the ways we already alluded to at the beginning. This is why he says, he reminds us that there is one body, one body of Christ, one kingdom of God, one family of God. We are all members of one, one being. And there's one spirit just as one hope is the goal of your calling by God. We all have the same hope. We all have different work to do. We all live very different lives. But our hope is exactly the same. It is one and the same. Our hope is heaven. Our hope is God. Our hope is holiness. Our hope is the peace and happiness of the communion of persons. He goes on, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, these are the essentials. And one God and Father of all. That means that God wills all Christians to form a unity one day in the new heavens and new earth with the Muslims, the Buddhists, the atheists, those who don't know God right now, those who reject God. We are destined to form one body. That's why he says there's one God and Father of all 
who is over all, who works through all and within all. God is carrying out one work. He goes on then in quoting Psalm 68, and he quotes this because he's pointing out that God had foretold in many centuries past what he would do in sending his son, his son who would take our humanity, our fallen humanity, to himself. He would redeem us, and he would be raised to new life and then definitively ascend with his humanity in tow, ascend into heaven. And he says he went up to the heights, he took captives, he led a host of captives. Now, in a sense, we were all captives, captives of sin and death. So that when Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he takes with himself the whole host of captives. Now, certainly, it alludes to the fact that he goes down to the abode of the dead after he dies, and he takes with him the just who have been waiting for the revelation of the resurrection. But St. Paul, a few verses later, goes on to explain the meaning of this text when he says, when the text says he went up, it must mean that he had gone down to the deepest levels of the earth, the abode of the dead. But even before his resurrection, God himself descended to the depths of earth by taking our sinful humanity to himself and becoming man and living a life on earth, a life of poverty, of suffering. And the one who went down is none other than the one who went up above all the heavens to fill all things. He is speaking here of the fullness so that God can be all in all. This is why, quoting Psalm 68, he says, he gave gifts to men. Now, before the time of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, man may have desired this unity, which is also about peace and brotherhood, but man could not have this kind of unity or know it because he had not yet received, he had not yet been reconciled to God and to his brothers, and he had not received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is why in chapter 2 of the same letter, St. Paul tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We were separated from God. So then, man is united to God, and man then, with the love of God in him, can now be reunited with all of his brothers and sisters. In other words, now we have the hope of the unity of mankind, and Christ sends the Holy Spirit so that we will receive all the gifts that we need for this unity to be brought about. Now, those gifts are profound. We receive those gifts first in baptism. We receive true knowledge and understanding wisdom, counsel, piety, fortitude, fear of the Lord. We receive the gifts of faith and hope and charity. We receive Christ himself, who is light. I am the light of the world, he says. We receive that light, and he makes us light to the world. We become children of light. So the church, we must understand from the very beginning, as she herself points out, 
The church has been marked by great diversity, which comes both from the variety of God's gifts and the great diversity of those who receive them. Within the unity of God's people, the church says, the multiplicity of peoples and cultures is gathered together. This is the great gathering of all nations that God has been speaking about through the prophets from ages of old. Among the church's members, there are different gifts, different offices, different conditions, different ways of life. There are many differences, but all the differences which the Lord has willed, which he has put between the members of his body, serve its unity and mission. This is the profound mystery in this. They don't work against us. They serve, they benefit, they help, they bring about the unity and mission which God has willed so that we have diversity of ministry among us, but unity of mission. Diversity of vocation, but unity of our work in Christ. We have great diversity of personality, gifts, resources, strengths, but unity in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That is the point that St. Paul is making. And he concludes then, about halfway into chapter 4, by saying, If we live by the truth and in love, we shall grow completely into Christ. This is the goal. This is God's plan. Christ, who is head, by whom the whole body is fitted and joined together, every joint adding its own strength for each individual part to work according to its function. By adding our strengths, we help others work according to the way that God has called them. We help by contributing what we have to contribute. And so, the body grows until it has built itself up in love. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering the following topic, Sin is Darkness, Holiness is Light. And now, back to Dr. George. St. Paul began chapter 4 by urging us to lead a life worthy of the vocation to which we are called. Now, in a universal way, we must say that that vocation is holiness. But we each have our particular vocations. He says, take care, take every care then, to preserve the unity of the Spirit by the peace that binds you together. There is one obstacle to this unity of Spirit. And it is not, as we have pointed out, it is not the differences among us. It is personal sin. It is the differences that result from the disorder of sin, from disunity, from disruption that is caused through sin, and through the fragmentation, the separation, the divisions that are caused in the body of Christ. This is why St. Paul now turns his attention to the moral life and holiness, because we need to understand 
the degree to which all sin must be excluded, eradicated from our lives, if we are to fulfill our part, our role in bringing about the unity, the perfect unity of all God's people. The battle, as scripture tells us in many places, the battle is won between darkness and light. We see this theme in any number of places in scripture, and we find it now in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The world usually is symbolized by darkness. Why? Because the world rejects God, rejects the truth and wisdom of God. The world prefers its own imperfect, man-made plans, forms of thinking, ways of life. And so, St. Paul, in speaking about this, says that they, the worldly, are intellectually in the dark. Now, there may be many intelligent people, people with a high IQ, but if they do not have the Spirit of the Lord living in them, they do not possess true knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. They have a very imperfect, a worldly form of it. They are in the dark, St. Paul says, and they are estranged from the life of God because of the ignorance, which is the consequence of their closed minds. Their sense of right and wrong, once dulled, they have abandoned all self-control and pursue to excess every kind of uncleanness. We see this all over the world today. He says, now, that is hardly the way that you have learned in Christ. He is calling us to remember everything we have been taught. He is speaking to, to Christians, to people who have been living the Christian life perhaps only a few years, perhaps 15 or 20 years. But he is saying, remember what you were taught. Remember the Word of God. Remember divine revelation. Remember the law of Christ that you were taught. He says, you do know. He also reminds us in other places that this law is written on our hearts. We know it. So that every person can discern in a fundamental way the good. We can separate good from evil and choose it. So he goes on then in the remainder of chapter 4 and on into chapter 5, where he gives us very specific instances. Really, this is a beautiful moral exhortation, one which the church recommends, one of a number, that we find in St. Paul's letters that are useful for us in doing a prayerful examination of conscience. We can read chapters 4 through 6 of the letter to the Ephesians, particularly chapters 4 and 5, and we can place ourselves in the light of Christ, in the presence of the Word of God, and ask what God is saying to us, what He is calling us to in our hearts. When He speaks, for example, of that truth, that sincerity, which is owed to our neighbor, as He says in chapter 4, He says, let everyone speak the truth to his neighbor, not only in words, but by the example of our lives, of course. He says, because we are members of one another. Think about it. I mean, that is what true charity is. We don't want to be lied to. We don't want to be misled. We want the truth for ourselves. We must then, in how we speak, how we deal with others, the example that we give through our lives, it must reflect the truth about God. 
the revelation he has given us in the Son. He says, even if you are angry, we all get angry sometimes. Anger is part of the package of emotions or passions that God has placed in man. It's helpful, but it, like other of the passions, can tempt us or lead us into sin if we don't have self-discipline, if we're not wary, if we are not rooted in prayer, and if we're not listening to the Holy Spirit within us. So he says, even if you are angry, as if to say, when you do become angry, do not sin. Being angry, feeling angry, is not a sin. It's a warning light. It's the Spirit talking to us about something we need to address, something we need to sort through, something we need to be healed of. It's God calling us to that healing in the Eucharist, in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, calling us to work on that unity in the body of Christ. So feeling angry is not a sin, but giving into it can very well be a sin, and usually is because we end up saying things which hurt others. We end up shouting. We end up acting upon that anger. He says, do not give the devil a foothold when you're feeling angry. He says, don't give him a chance to work on you. Don't mull on it. Don't sit with it. Don't let it fester like a sore that gets worse and worse. He says, say good things. Say things that do good to your listener. How often do we find ourselves in conversations where we say things that we, later in reflecting upon it, we become aware that in that conversation there were things being said that were not building up the body of Christ, that were not helpful to others. The ones we really wound are ourselves. We hurt our own souls. We wound our souls whenever we strike against a neighbor, whenever we violate charity. This is why he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. God has placed his seal upon you. God has placed his mark of ownership upon us. When the way we speak, when we speak, we must try to do so aware that we belong to God. We are his ambassador. We are his emissary. And even in casual conversation, it's as if God has said, I send you into this conversation to be my ambassador. I want the other people in that conversation to know something about my goodness, about my consoler spirit, about my mercy about my truth. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. All bitterness, St. Paul says, all bad temper, anger, shouting, abuse of every kind must be far removed from you. He's very clear. All of these things, many of them, of course, are rooted in, in anger, in discontent with ourselves, with others. In place of these, he says, be kind, compassionate, and mutually forgiving. Why? Because he says, you must forgive as God has forgiven you in Christ. Whatever other people have done to us, it doesn't compare to the ways in which we have offended God, our Creator, the loving Father. And so, 
There are times in our life when God calls us to offer forgiveness to another, perhaps without their having apologized, perhaps without their having come forward and said something to fix or to remedy the situation. But in offering that forgiveness, we are giving the supreme kind of gift. We are showing mercy as God showed us mercy in his Son. The Father forgave us in his Son before we asked for forgiveness. We actually needed the Spirit to ask forgiveness. In fact, we could not even see our need for a Savior or see the sin within us until God had given us the Spirit, until He showed us His tender love and forgiveness in the person of the Son. And in seeing it, all of a sudden, there is a point in our lives where we wake up and it's like, oh my goodness, we see the whole of our past life and how we have taken for granted even the gift of our baptism. We did not tell God we were sorry the day we were baptized before we went to the baptismal font and were cleansed and made new and we received heaven. We probably had said nothing at that point. We probably were unaware that we were sinners who deserved hell. God gave us all of that. It is love, it is love and mercy which conquers evil, which conquers sin. And yes, God gives to his servants opportunities in our lifetime to do for another what God has done for us. The amazing thing though is it's not just, we're not paying God back a favor. We can't anyway. That opportunity, if we embrace it, as difficult as it may be, that opportunity makes our hearts grow greatly in love. It actually heals our own hearts of the sin that is in them. Whenever we show kindness, compassion, and forgiveness to others, we are receiving in our hearts the healing graces and the strength of God. That's the amazing thing. God is constantly giving. We sometimes think we're the ones doing the hard work, but no, it is the Spirit doing the work. We are receiving, and the pain in it is difficult only because we have not yet been completely purified in love. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be continuing Sin is Darkness, Holiness is Light. And now, back to Dr. George. So he then finishes in chapter 5 by cautioning us not to go the way of the world, not to put on the mind or the thinking of the world. We must understand we are children of light. We not only live in the light, but we have been transformed. We are light. God is counting on us to be lights amid the darkness of the world so that others can be drawn to God. So St. Paul says in verse 6 then, do not let anyone deceive you with empty arguments. Anyone in the world, make sure that you do not throw your lot in with them. He said, you were in darkness once, 
but now you are light in the Lord. Behave as children of light, he says. Take no part in the futile works of darkness, but on the contrary, show them up for what they are. Now, this is an amazing quality of light, that light shows up, light reveals goodness, but it shows evil up for what it is. That's why St. Paul goes on to say, anything shown up by the light will be illuminated. Imagine if there are people in a very dark room. They can't see anything. No one knows what's going on or what anyone is really doing. And all of a sudden in that room, there is a light. Now, not only do the people like the light and appreciate the light, that light, it is something good, but it sheds light. It pushes light into the darkness. It sheds light on the truth, the truths, the truth about the room, but the truths of the people in the room, what's going on in the room. It is appreciated. He says, anything shown up by the light will be illuminated, and anything illuminated is itself light. When light is shed into darkness, we see what's going on. We see things for what they are. Do you remember when Jesus talks about light and darkness, and he says, those, those who are committed to evil prefer the darkness. They like to work in the darkness. So much that is evil happens at night, really, in the world. Someone breaks into a house. At night, things happen on dark streets. At night, they prefer the darkness. Why? Because the light makes people who are evil uneasy. Because it reveals the truth about their actions, the truth about them. Imagine if someone is perpetrating evil, and all of a sudden a light goes on in that room, and there are many who can see what is actually going on. That's what St. Paul is saying, that light lets the truth be known. It itself is revealing. It reveals truth to everyone who then can see in that light. Now, we are children of light, so that not only do we live in the light by living a moral life, but we are light itself, St. Paul says. You are light in the Lord. He next quotes a couple of phrases from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, that's why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, there is an allusion here, of course, to the resurrection. We recall, for example, when the little girl, the daughter of Jairus, the president of the synagogue, dies, and they want him to go to her house. She is very sick and dying, and he is detained momentarily with people. And so some people come from Jairus' house and say, the master doesn't need to come. She died. She's dead. And Jesus goes anyway, and when he arrives at the house, he says, the little girl is not dead. She is sleeping. And scripture says they ridiculed Jesus. Why? Because they had no faith in him as resurrection, as life. Now, when Jesus raises people from the dead, and he even says in the Gospels, in some instances, that they are sleeping, 
he is pointing to the resurrection. He is teaching about the resurrection. And in baptism, we unite ourselves with the death of Christ. We go down into that death and we put to death the sin within us so that we are now, we become a new person, a new man. We live that new life. We have awakened from that stupor of death, from that sleep. So there is that kind of sleep. But St. Paul quotes Isaiah here because he's still talking to the Christians. He is saying, wake up sleeper. There is a way in which we are all still sleepers. We are all a little bit unaware or dozy. To be asleep is to feel that you are living a certain kind of reality, but the fact of the matter is the life in dreams is not the real life. Those who are asleep in sin or in death, they're not awake in the life of the resurrection. That's the life that counts. That's the real life. Now, we have put to death sin in us, but there's a way in which we are a little bit asleep all the time. So the church is always calling us to wake up using the words that God himself has given us. We have vices, forms of stumbling, sins, imperfections in our life. We're kind of used to them and we know they're there and we are sort of asleep in that we allow them, we live in that dream-like state, if you will. And St. Paul says you need to wake up and live fully in the light of Christ. He says, wake up, sleeper, wake up. Those of you who still have sin that you need to wake up from, rise from that kind of death. Now, it may not be mortal sin, but whatever, whatever is contrary to our life in Christ, is not the real life. It's not the life of the resurrection. He says, and Christ will give you life. Now the moral life is spiritual worship. St. Paul has said this in his letter to the Romans. The church teaches this. To live the moral life is to worship God in our very existence. But we must never forget that the moral life is bound to and nourished by the liturgical life. The life of prayer. We read scripture prayerfully. We say our prayers daily. But by liturgical life, the church also means the celebration of the sacraments, most particularly the Eucharist. And life in Christ has its foundation in the Eucharistic banquet as the Church teaches. Has its foundation because in the Eucharist we become intimately united with Christ himself. In the Eucharist, the graces that we have received in baptism are preserved, they are increased, and they are renewed in the sacrament of the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, we separate ourselves from sin. The Eucharist unites us with the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ himself. And in this union, we are cleansed from sin, not mortal sin. Of course, we need the sacrament of reconciliation for that. But we are cleansed from 
the sin, the vices that are within us. The Eucharist breaks the disordered attachments that we have to sin. It strengthens us. It strengthens us and also enlightens us. The Eucharist is true power and fruitfulness in the moral life, in this life of truth and brotherhood we've been talking about. Remember what Jesus himself says. He says, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. He says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is important in terms of being children of light and living the moral life. And if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, Jesus says, you have no life in you. This is why the church is very clear in saying that life in Christ has its foundation in the Eucharistic banquet. And we, when we celebrate the Eucharist and receive the Eucharist, we are united with the mystical body of Christ in heaven. In a sense, that's what heaven is. It is the eternal celebration of our Pasch, Christ our life. We cannot speak of the fruits of Holy Communion, and the Church enumerates them in the Catechism beautifully. It's well worth reading that whole section. There are a number of paragraphs. But we cannot speak of the fruits of Holy Communion or of the Eucharist without mentioning that it brings about the unity. It is the unity of the mystical body, the perfect unity. Think of how we are united truly, really, profoundly in a way that we don't even see or understand in this life. We are really and truly united with every other member who lives in the mystical body of Christ through the Eucharist. As the Church says, the Eucharist makes the Church. They're profound words. The Eucharist makes the Church. It's really the fulfillment, the completion of what God has been doing from the foundation of the world. In baptism, we have been called to form one body. The Eucharist fulfills this call. It's absolutely profound. It is no accident that twice in the reading for this lesson, St. Paul, it seems that he does this sort of out of nowhere, unexpectedly, he calls us to make thanksgiving to God. He says, render thanksgiving to God. Here he's talking about living the moral life, and he talks about how our speech should glorify God. And then all of a sudden he says, what you need to be doing is offering thanksgiving to God. He ends the section the same way. What he is saying is that we as children of the light, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We must clothe ourselves with words and deeds which resemble, which reflect, which show forth God's goodness and holiness. And in this way, we are giving praise and thanksgiving to God through our moral life. So he finishes this section by saying, so be careful about the sort of lives you lead. 
Make the best of the present time, for it is a wicked age. We are lights living amid darkness in the world. This is why you must not be thoughtless, but must recognize what is the will of the Lord. Do not get drunk with wine. He's speaking, of course, as an allusion, not only to wine literally, but to the wine, the things of the world that tend to inebriate us. He says, do not get drunk on worldly things. This is simply dissipation. Be filled with the Spirit. Sing psalms and hymns and inspired songs among yourselves, singing and chanting to the Lord in your hearts, in our lives, and everything we say and do. Always and everywhere, giving thanks to God, who is our Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, through chapter 6, which include the following three topics. Bride and Bridegroom of the Covenant. Second, the Fourth Commandment. And third, the Armor of Christian Warfare. Knowing the Scripture's Bible study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scripture's program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions whose mission is to proclaim Christ and his love for his bride, the Church. Mm -hmm.